Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, we'll be picking up where we left off on previous time. Our focus will be on verse 9, but we'll read verses 1 through 9. And if you would please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word, we'll read chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 1 through 11, rather. And this is God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. You may be seated. Thank you. And let us pray together again. O great and glorious God in heaven, O Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of this church, we ask you, we implore you to be with us now and to speak to us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. O Lord, illumine my heart, strengthen my my whole frame, my lips to speak your word. O Lord, your word is your oracle. I pray that I would speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. And, O Lord, I pray for these people before me. I pray that we would hear your word, that we would believe your word, and that your word would save us and give us eternal glory with you. Have mercy upon us, I pray. I pray that we would see how great our Savior is and that we would love him more. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. How does God see you? Does he see you in all your sin and filth and vileness? And believe me, you have that. You inherited a sin debt from Adam, and you've only added more and more to it by your own personal sin. By now, you're a vile wretch in yourself. Does God see you that way? Of course God sees you. I ask my little boys, can you see God? And they've learned the answer, no, but he sees me. 
And my friends, God sees us. God sees us. And as the scriptures say, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Paul tells us here that there is another way that God can see a sinner. That sinner can be found in Christ, as Paul says, hidden in Christ, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah! The sinner can be united to Christ. Christ takes all the sinner's debts, and the sinner gets all Christ's assets. If that is not yet true of you, may our great king make it so before you leave this place. The key to come into the high tower of Christ's righteousness is faith, believing him. May you believe tonight. This evening, our topic will be to be found in him. We're speaking of legal union with Christ. I'll explain what that means. Don't worry. But let's start with our text here. The overarching theme of this chapter is rejoice in the Lord, as Paul told the believers in Philippi in chapter 3, verse 1. And we have already seen in previous times how that rejoicing in the Lord means avoiding those who threaten our trust in Christ by insisting that we have to be circumcised and keep the law before we can become a bona fide Christian. That's verses 2 and 3. And then in verses 4 through 8, we saw that Paul tells us how he had the highest credentials in the world for having confidence in the flesh. But he cast them all aside and considered them to be dung and lived his Christian life considering all those things to be loss, worse than useless, so that he could gain Christ. We talked briefly last time about how that gaining Christ, Paul said, I left all those things, gave them all up, counted them lost, counted them dung, so I could gain Christ, win Christ. Gaining Christ means experiencing union with him. And this union with Christ comes in two aspects. Legal union, outside of us, objective, what God says about us, and experiential union, our experience and our life. Paul pursues this union with Christ in these two aspects so earnestly that he counts everything else loss. And today we'll be talking about the legal side, the legal aspect of that union with Christ. And Paul uses the term here, found in him, to be found in him. The experiential side, the subjective side of our union with Christ, is what Paul will talk about in the next verses, which we won't look at today. But there's a lot of meat there. I'll just read them. He says, I want to be found in him, that's what we'll look at today, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, legal union. Verse 10, now he gets into experiential union, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul has a bucket list. He doesn't have skydiving in there. He doesn't have bungee jumping or some other thrill. He has, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection coursing through my veins. I want to experience 
God's power in me. And I want to also experience suffering for his sake. And I want to attain the same thing Christ attained through suffering, which was the resurrection of the dead, eternal glory in God's presence. Paul says, I want that. You can have your Hebrew of the Hebrews. You can have your um, all, the, all the qualifications I had. You can have them all. I don't want them. I want to know Christ, his power, his suffering, and resurrection with him. But what's the foundation of all that? It's this legal union, which we'll look at tonight. Being found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God through faith, by faith. But before we start looking at that legal union, let me just mention that keeping the legal and experiential sides of union with Christ separate or clearly distinguished in our minds is crucial. Paul advocates faith alone on the legal side to be righteous before God, our legal standing, we must simply believe the gospel. But on the experiential side, the practical side, sanctification, Paul is all about faith and doing. Our activity, our doing. You must do something as well as believe. For the legal side, just believe. For the practical side, believe and do. Trust and obey. That song that we sing. And sometimes Christians get those mixed up. They hear, only believe. And they forget that's talking about to be right with God. And they think it means that's all there is to the Christian life. That's not all there is to the Christian life. There's a lot more to it, but it's all based on believing. And it's all based on what God gives us through that believing, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our focus tonight is the legal side, what God says about us. In Christ. Let's start again reading verse 8, and we'll read through verse 9 to get the whole sentence. Verse 8 says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things, all his qualifications, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things at his conversion, and do count them but, law, but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. And be found in him. What does be found mean in this context? Often when we say the words to be found, we mean that something was lost, hidden, or unseen until someone searched for it. And then they came upon it, saw it, or possessed it. I have a tendency of losing stuff. And when it is found, that means I looked for it or chanced upon it, and it was not in my possession, but now it is. But here, the word be found, Paul is using it here in a different and less common way, but still not unusual. In English, as well as Greek, the word found, passive mood for those who love grammar, can simply mean to be seen to be, to be perceived to be, or just to be. We sometimes use the word found in a sentence to mean perceived to be, seen to be, or to be. There are several other places in Scripture where this is the case. 
And so I'll give you a few examples just to make it clear. You don't have to turn there because we'll just move through them quickly. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Mary, that blessed woman, was found with child of the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean they were looking for her and then they found her. It means that people saw her. They perceived her to be with child of the Holy Ghost. Or we can just say she was with child of the Holy Ghost. Luke chapter 9, verse 36, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the voice that said, this is my beloved son, when it was passed, Jesus was found alone. That means that his disciples perceived him to be alone. Or he was alone. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, if the resurrection of Christ were not a historical reality, but it is, then Paul says, yea, we are found false witnesses of God. We are seen to be false witnesses of God. In the sight of God and men, we are seen to be false witnesses if the resurrection didn't really take place. So when Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 9, and be found in him, he's not talking about being lost and found. The scriptures do talk about being lost and found, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about being lost in sin and then being recovered from that being lost in sin. He means he wants to be in a particular state and to be seen in a particular light, to be perceived by one, namely God, to be in Christ. He wants God to look at him as in Christ. When God looks at me, I want to be found before him in Christ. I want to be hidden in Christ in relation to God. That'll affect how I appear to other people as well, but the focus here is God. This is legal union with Christ. I'm in Christ legally. Just like my dear Emily. Many of you call her Emily. But in certain aspects, in relation to the law, she's Mrs. Maxson, and we function as a unit because she's found in me, and I'm found in her. We function as a unit to the law in some senses because of that legal union. I like to tell my boys, you know what holds daddy and mommy together? It's words. But God puts a high value on words. And that legal union between Christ and his people is based on words, his covenant. And it is a solid covenant. Words matter, and some words matter a lot. So this is legal union with Christ. I am in Christ legally. God considers me, perceives me to be one with Christ. When Christ Jesus died on Calvary's cross, God says, Paul already died and paid the full price for his sins because Christ did, and he sees Paul through Christ. God sees his people legally as one with Christ. To be found by God, to be seen by God, to be perceived by God, to be in our sins would be a tragedy beyond belief. What's the big deal? Why is Paul squeamish about appearing before God as he is? Why does he desire that legal union so much that he says, I will cast off all my qualifications and all of my benefits in this world so I can be found in Christ. 
Well, simply, God is holy. That's three words, and they're short words. And it sounds simple. We could have the feeling that what we said was something kind of ordinary. God is holy. But to say God is holy is to say God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will whet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. Psalm 7. To say God is holy is to say thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1. To say God is holy is to say that he chased Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for one sin and left an angel with a flaming sword to prevent their return. To say God is holy is to say that God burned up Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone for their filthy wickedness. To say God is holy is to say that God slew the very priests of Israel, the sons of Aaron, Hophni, and Phinehas, when they offered fire. I'm sorry, I got the names wrong. Those were the sons of Eli. The two sons of Aaron, when they offered fire that God hadn't told them to offer. Moses said, this is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. God is holy. He burns up sin and sinners. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. To be found in your sin in the sight of a holy God, the holy God who made you would be a tragedy for eternity. It would be better that you had not been born than to be found in yourself before God. Think a little more about what sin has done to us that makes our being seen by God to be in our own sin a big deal. Before the new birth, before God does a mighty work in someone's heart and brings them into the kingdom of God, every man's heart is a sink of pollution and deception. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try or test the reins, even to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Jeremiah 17. After the new birth, every Christian's flesh still mars, defiles, and distorts all their righteous deeds. Romans 7, for I know that in me, Paul says, that is in my flesh dwells, dwelleth no good thing. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. If you or I, God's people or not, regenerate or not, were to stand before God with no righteousness but our own and ask his opinion, he would have to say, you are defiled, you are filthy, you are undeserving of any favor, worthy of wrath. This is why God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And this is, way, this is why in John's final vision of the new Jerusalem, he sees sinners shut out from God's presence forever, outside the gate, outside the wall, from God's holy city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. He gives them those names because they are found in their sins. He sees them in their sin. When God looks at you, my friend, what does he see? Does he see the liar that you are? Does he see the murderer that your angry heart would make you to be? Does he see the whoremonger that your lustful flesh would make you to be? Does he see the idolatry that oozes out of every pore of your religious flesh? Does he see you in that way? Are you found in you? Or are you found in Christ? No wonder Paul says, I want to be found in Christ in the sight of God. I don't want him to see me. I don't want God to see me. I want him to see Christ, the Son of God, who is God, my legal representative. All right, Paul, tell me about this being found in Christ. Well, Paul has a little more to tell us about what we don't want. First, let's consider whether securing our own righteousness is really out of the question, as Paul says here, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So Paul says he wants to be found in him not having one kind of righteousness, but having another kind of righteousness. And so we know for sure that being found in Christ has to do with righteousness, because that's how he spells it out. It's a legal union. He calls what we don't want mine own righteousness. What would it mean to successfully execute a righteousness of my own? How could I have my own righteousness? Let's see if we can do it. First, we would need an innocent nature, a pure, perfect mind, body, and soul that would not be tainted by sin. Have you got that? Are you good? Does your mind tend to produce only good, right, just, fair, and upright thoughts? Does your will only lean toward honesty, justice, purity, generosity, and goodness? And does your body, your pure and holy body, work together with your pure and holy mind to lead you to do only good, wholesome, balanced, selfless, God-honoring things? Does your body, mind, and soul tend toward good absolutely 100% of the time? You would have to have an innocent nature. Also, if you were to be found before God in your own righteousness with his approval, it would have to start with a perfect, um, it would have to start with that innocent nature, but and you're not there, but it would also have to have perfect obedience. You would need a report card of perfect obedience to all of God's commandments. From the first day that you existed until the very day you breathed your last, you would have to love God with all your soul, mind, and strength, and you would have to love your neighbor as yourself. You would have to adore and praise and magnify God. You would have to keep all his holy laws. You would have to do all he required, not omitting anything and not violating any 
commandment. Now, brethren, those of you who know Christ, who are in Christ, you would like that. You would love to live a life like that. It's a truly beautiful thing, but as far as our standing before God, as far as being found by Him, as far as being seen by Him, appearing before Him, never let your love for obedience cause you to think you can hold it up as a meritorious thing with God. Our nature is stained from the start. We're the opposite of having an innocent nature. Birds obey their creator. Dogs and cats do the same. But men and fallen angels are the only creatures in the universe who rebel. We, and because of Adam's sin and our inheritance of his nature, we have a rebel's heart. We have rebel's bodies. We have a rebel's mind. By nature, you are a rebel. And before God, in yourself, you are found a rebel. Paul rejects all righteousness of his own. All my righteousness, all law righteousness, I reject, says Paul. Well, what about the law of Moses? Did God give that so we could earn this righteousness that we're talking about? Maybe by doing the sacrifices and the ceremonies, we could use God's appointed means of bridging the gap and being made righteous? No, Paul says, no righteousness which is of the law, from the law. And that law did point the worshipers beyond itself. They didn't always see it clearly. But all who truly were God's elect in Israel, while they were obeying the law that God gave them, they were righteous, not because of obeying the law, but because of faith in Christ to us to come, even if they didn't see it all clearly. They were made righteous by something else beyond that law. They were made righteous by Christ, which we're about to talk about. The law will never make anyone right with God. It is holy and just and good. And it is what we love. God puts it in our hearts to love and desire that law. And we see more of that in the experiential union with Christ. As just as he loved God's law, we love and seek to walk in that law. But as far as our legal union with Christ, as far as our standing before him, our, legal, our, our standing before God, the law and ourselves have no part to play in making us good before God, right before God. So Paul says, I don't want any of that. I don't want my own righteousness, and I don't want the one that's from the law. Paul wants to be found in Christ, not having that kind of righteousness, but another kind of righteousness. Paul says, you can put up no effective barrier to prevent God from seeing the filth of your life. You yourself cannot hide yourself. But God himself has provided a glorious and marvelous hiding place for the weary sinner. Paul says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God, through faith, by faith. What is righteousness? We've used the word several times. But what is it? Simply, it is legal standing. That's why it's part of being found in him. In future verses, he'll talk about being empowered by him, about suffering with him. Those are experiences and activities that we engage in. 
But in the area of righteousness, we're talking about legal standing status of being right, correct, being in line with God's character and his law. Status before God. Now here, Paul expressly embraces a righteousness that is a function not of his own activity, but of someone else's, Christ and God. That which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So this righteousness that Paul wants is that legal status or standing before God that is not dependent on any, in any way on his own activity in keeping the law. This is the foundation of salvation. This is not all there is to salvation. Justification, being declared right before God on the basis of Jesus Christ, is not the only thing there is in salvation. Salvation includes regeneration, sanctification, glorification, and much, much more. But this righteousness, this legal standing of being right before God, is the beginning. It's the foundation. It's the starting place. If God hadn't given us that, we couldn't get anything else. This righteousness given to sinners and described, we describe it as justification is the foundation of it all. How else could a wretched, murderous thief who was hanging next to the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross go straight to paradise the very day that he met Christ? except for righteousness being put on his account. We might say, well, Jesus died for him. True. God saved him. True. But what did Jesus do in dying for him? What did God do in saving him? The guilt of the thief's sins were legally transferred to the holy man Jesus who was dying on the cross next to him. And the righteous deeds and perfect works of Jesus were put on that thief's account so that the wrath of God was poured out on his holy son and the goodness and mercy of God was poured out on that thief. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the substitute for sinners. His righteousness is imputed to them, put on their account. It's a legal thing, an accounting thing. And because of Christ's love for sinners, he became their substitute. He took their law place as we sometimes describe it. He entered into legal union with them. He took all their debts, and they get all his assets. Praise God. That's a great salvation. Praise the Lord. He says it's a righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. This is the means by which this righteousness comes. We see Paul saying that there's this great and glorious thing. How does it come? How do I get it? I want it too, Paul. I'll throw away all my uh, all of my my credit, all of all of my benefits, all the things that I count to be gain to me. I'll lose them all. I want this. Yeah. Or are you still holding on to something? Saying, "Well, I still want some things." Paul says, "I'll give it all up. I just want Christ, and I want this. I want righteousness which is through the faith of Christ." The only hope of righteousness for guilty sinners comes by one means, believing Christ. Faith in Christ. 
It's called the faith of Christ because the great works that Christ did are the basis of that believing. What does this faith believe? This faith believes Jesus' incarnation. The Son of God came into this sinful world as the promised Messiah of God and was born as a baby. God became man. Of him the angel said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But why was he incarnate? So he could grow and be a full-grown man who could unite with the sinful sons and daughters of Adam and represent them to God and God to them. That's why Hebrews says, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Christ is our brother. And I can say that to you who do not yet know him, as well as those who do. Now, it's a different sense. He is your natural brother. And that's the basis on which he commands you to come to him in faith, because as your natural brother, son of Mary, as well as son of God, he is capable of providing a salvation that works, of procuring righteousness on your behalf of removing sin on your behalf because he is related to you. This faith believes in his incarnation. This faith believes in Christ's obedience. It's the faith of Christ because it's faith in Christ's obedience. See his perfect obedience of the Father. I do always those things that please him, John eight twenty nine. And why did he obey? Well, he obeyed because he had to. As a man, as the righteous man, he had to, but he didn't just do it for himself. He did it as the substitute for his people. All of his obedience built a glorious righteousness for his people. He obeyed his dad and mom for us. He spoke the truth for us. That doesn't mean we don't need to speak the truth. When we have entered into union with him, we love speaking the truth with him and for him, but he did it for us first because we don't always speak the truth, and we did not always speak the truth. He spoke the truth for us. He thought pure and holy thoughts for us. He desired fellowship with God for us. We did not. We did not want to fellowship with God. We didn't think of this union with God thing. We would have been pleased if we had been separated from God forever, just not in hell. Maybe in some forest somewhere we could do whatever we wanted, but God didn't create the world for that. Christ was tempted and obeyed for us. He was weary and hungry and thirsty and still obeyed for us. He kept the law of God for us. Praise his name. He went about doing good for us because we don't. Oh, praise his name. And then he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The faith of Christ, Paul says, this righteousness is through the faith of Christ. It believes his incarnation. It believes his obedience. It believes, this faith believes his suffering and death. What was our precious Lord Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, what was he doing as he sweat great drops of blood in the garden? Was he just setting a great example? Was he giving some marvelous moral influence to bear upon this world so we'd all straighten up and be good? No, 
Not at all. Our Lord Jesus in sweating, standing before the Sanhedrin, being condemned to death, being beaten, whipped and smitten and mocked and stripped and going to be hung upon the cross was doing it all for us, for his people in their place as their substitute so that Paul could be found in him. So that you could be found in him. He was the great substitute. He didn't wait until the day of judgment. He called the day of judgment down upon himself early. And he had the judge judge him first before the judgment fell upon one of his elect people. God's judgment upon him, God's goodness upon you and me, upon sinful men and women. That's amazing. That's glorious. Only sin suppresses us so we don't see how great it is. Hallelujah. The faith of Christ. Why is it called the faith of Christ? It not only believes his incarnation, his obedience, his suffering and death, it believes his resurrection. Because three days after he was laid in that grave, he rose again. When the stone rolled away and the angel sat upon it, the grave clothes lay behind, properly arranged. He did all that for us. He was raised again for our justification, for our righteousness, because God, by raising him again, is saying, it's done. All the penalty has been paid. Judgment day has come and gone. You're free. For every weary sinner who looks away from their own righteousness and casts their needy soul upon the arms of an all-sufficient Savior, he did it. The Lord Jesus has done great works. And when Paul says, I don't want any righteousness of my own, but rather that which is of the faith of Christ, he's talking about that righteousness that comes to be given to the sinner when he or she believes these great works of Christ on their behalf. Believe the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said to that Philippian jailer, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. In short, Jesus is the substitute. Paul says, I want to be found in him, not in the fig leaves of my human works. God tore those fig leaves off of Adam and Eve and gave them a bloody skin apron. Adam and Eve were then found, as it were, in the animal because they were clothed in its skin. And when God looked at them, he saw the skin, the animal that had already borne the curse. It had died on their behalf. Paul says, I want to be found in Christ. I want to be found in him, like when the destroying angel comes over the cursed houses of the Egyptians, which it surely would, for God had promised it. Paul says, I want God to see the blood of that Passover lamb over the mantle. I don't want to be conjuring up my own tricks and schemes of how to keep the destroying angel out. He will only respect one thing, the blood on the doorframe, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the son of God and the Son of Man. Are you found in him under the blood of the Passover lamb? There was a union between that animal that died and the firstborn child in that house that would have died. He ate the meat of that animal. He saw the blood put upon the door. And if the animal died, then the child went free because the death was done in his place. It's so beautiful. The Lord Jesus Christ 
is our Passover lamb. Paul says, I don't want to, I don't want the angel to come over and I'm there by myself with all my good deeds, my Phariseeism, all my works. I want him only to see Christ and the blood spilt on my behalf. So, what is faith? What is faith? If, if this righteousness comes by the faith of Christ, if I will be found in him by faith, what is faith? That should be a huge question to us. This righteousness is said to come by the faith of Christ. So what is faith? What is believing? The two words, faith and believing, refer to the same action. Believing is simply considering something to be true. Believing in someone is considering that person to be reliable, true. The Word of God uses pictures to help us understand this. It's simple enough as it is, but God stoops down to our level and gives us great and beautiful pictures. The Scriptures call us and command us to respond to God and His Son, Jesus Christ, by actions that, are, that serve as pictures of faith. In Isaiah 40, he says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The idea there is looking expectantly, waiting for God to bring that salvation. That's faith. Isaiah 45, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look. Faith, belief. Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come. That's faith. Believe. Coming is not some complex process. It starts with recognizing there's something you want to go to and then going to it. The Lord Jesus Christ called out in that great Last day of the feast when he was there gathered with all the people in John 7. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Come, drink. Believe. Take what is set in front of you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come, come, come. If you've come before, come again. If you've never come, come. The Lord Jesus Christ commands you to come. He calls you to come. Come. Believe. Faith is not a leap in the dark. That's ridiculous. A leap in the dark is foolishness. Never try to, never try to jump from one ledge to another in the dark. Faith is like standing on a rock. It's like walking in the light, the light of God's word. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not, well, I'll just believe. It's God's word says it. And I believe it. Amen. But why did God choose faith? What if he had chosen some great work for us to do so that we could be righteous before him? Why did he choose faith? Well, faith is a bashful thing because its whole focus is on the object of itself. It has no time to boast, no time to get arrogant, to pat itself on the back. It's by faith, so no man can boast, Paul says. It puts all the credit on the one promising. You just believe. And all the credit goes to the one who made the promise 
and you just say, he saved me. He did it. All the righteousness is from him. All the sin is from me and all the righteousness is from him. And I believe him. Faith opens the door to the great castle, which is Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul's saying to be found in him. When God looks down from heaven, we use that picture. It gets complex, but when God looks down from heaven, he sees the castle, which is Jesus Christ. Faith opens the door and the sinner goes in. Faith lowers the drawbridge and lets the sinner in. He hides there. He is safe alike from the storms of God's wrath, the attacks of Satan. In Christ, being found in him, the sinner is safe, not having righteousness which is his own, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Faith unites the soul of the sinner to Christ. Well, really, it's not faith that unites the soul to Christ. God does that. Christ does that, but he does it upon believing. And so we say faith unites the soul to Christ. All who believe are justified from all things that we could not be justified by the law of Moses. And then Paul says, Paul not only says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. He also says the righteousness of which is of God, by faith. This is in contrast to the righteousness that he said he did not want, which is of the law. He says here, I want the righteousness which is of God. In other words, I don't want a personal righteousness of my own, but I want a righteousness from God that is put on my account. Just as many might have looked to the law for their righteousness, Paul says the source of righteousness that he hopes in is God himself. This tells us that God and Christ are not at odds. Even though I've been using some terms that might conjure up that picture in your mind. Because I've said when God looks upon us, he sees us in Christ. So it's kind of like God and Christ are working against each other. God wants to punish us, Christ protects us. That's not the case at all. But we can use that picture because we have the righteousness of God, which must punish sin. But the grace and mercy and love of God has provided that deliverance from sin. I heard a preacher in Africa once depicting God as angry and threatening to destroy the wicked of this world. And Jesus then pleaded with his father to allow him to go and save sinners. That's totally false. The Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God, before he was called Jesus Christ, with the Son of God in eternity past, the Father, the Holy Spirit, they were in perfect unity, and they are the ones who came up with the plan. They are the ones who, as we say, covenanted together, and their word secures the salvation of all of God's people. From before this world was made, Jesus and the Father are not in conflict over the fate of this world. The Father and Son are in glorious, eternal, perfect agreement over what to do. The Father sent the Son, the Son willingly obeyed, and the Holy Spirit carries out the work after Christ has completed his. When Paul wants to be found in Christ, it is so he can be righteous with the righteousness of Christ, which is of God, the righteousness of God. Jesus is not just the one who justifies us. He is, as the Son of God, one with the Father, God himself, very God of very God. He is the Lord, Jehovah, our righteousness. 
as Jeremiah 23 and 33 say. Let that sink in. Jehovah, your righteousness? We started by looking at how terrible it would be if you were your righteousness. If I were my righteousness, if Paul was his own righteousness, Jehovah, our righteousness. Who has a quarrel with us? God does because of sin. But now that very God, the holy and righteous one who inhabits eternity, who has all power and all glory, his word is final. He is unfolding his eternal purpose of redemption and glory in his son, Jesus Christ. God has now undertaken to acquit, to forgive, but more, to account the sinner righteous with his own righteousness. That's amazing. Praise his name. God's righteousness for us. So Paul wants to be found in Christ because the judge himself has approved this remedy before the law. Paul wants to be found in Christ because the judge himself took the initiative to do this work. This is God's project. The justification thing is God's doing, not yours. It's not that you worked and worked and worked and got together and made a church and figured out how you could put together some idea of how God could maybe make you righteous. You could just squeak by and get saved. No, God did it. He did it all, and it's done. Now rest in what he has done. Paul wants to be found in Christ because the judge himself came down to do the substitution. The father appointed the son to be the one who would judge the world. Yes, and he's the one who came down first to live and obey and suffer for his people so that when they believe on him, they would be justified, declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ would be imputed to their account. The righteousness of God. The judge is satisfied with this remedy before the law. The judge is glorified by this remedy before the law. It would be utter blasphemy if a salvation were provided that satisfied us but didn't satisfy God. That got sinners off the hook but left God not pleased and honored. It's utterly impossible. In God's moral universe, he will not have any injustice done to him. And there's no injustice done to him here. This is God's righteousness. He's all on board. If you come and join this project of being made righteous by Jesus Christ, you're on board with the King of Heaven. He, this is His plan. This is His work. But God has satisfied Himself, glorified Himself, and honored Himself in the justification of His people and the salvation of sinners. He's pleased, and you should be too. So let's summarize what we've seen. Paul doesn't want God in his righteousness to ever see Paul by himself. It would be like a truly guilty criminal going to court without a lawyer. Paul threw away all earthly religious confidences so that he could be found in Christ before the court of heaven. Paul wants God to look down and see him hidden in the Savior's side, covered in his robe of righteousness. I'll never make any claims before God about what I've said or done or been. I'll simply plead the blood and righteousness of the great Savior. Where are you? How does God see you? That is the question. How does God see you? Does he see you in your sin? Or does he see Christ? And he says, in Christ, 
there's that person in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are naked before him. The shame of your sin covers you. You have no place to hide, no protection from his holy eye. But the king himself calls you. The judge himself warns you. The Lord of glory himself commands you, come, come, come and be united to me. I'll take your guilt and shame and you take my robe of spotless righteousness. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You'll be found in him. Repent and believe the gospel. You'll be found in him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They'll be found in him. So what is holding you back from the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, I just don't understand it all. Pray to him for light and seek him in prayer and the word. Did he not say seek and ye shall find? And Paul didn't say that this righteousness comes from understanding. He said this righteousness comes from believing. It comes from faith. Surely there's an aspect of understanding that's preliminary to faith. If you don't understand any words, how can you understand the word of God? But we don't have to understand everything in order to be justified. I don't know if I'm elect. Well, I don't know either. I don't know if you're elect or if I'm elect in in the ultimate sense as far as seeing the secrets of God or if President Biden is elect. I don't know if anyone's elect as far as seeing the mind of God. But we're justified by faith. And I see faith. I see faith in me, I believe. I see faith in others. And I see the fruits of faith. I see the working of the Holy Spirit. But we never start. Paul didn't say start with an election analysis. See first if you're elect and then believe. No, he says we're justified by faith in Christ. If you're thirsty, come. 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 I'm not sure if I'm believing. I think I am. I want to. Good. Keep your eye on Christ. Keep your eye on him. You're not saved by knowing whether you believe, although that's a great blessing to know that you believe, but you're not saved by knowing it. You're saved by believing. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. You're saved by Christ, not by your faith. You're saved through faith, but Christ does the saving. So look to Christ. Look to him. Some poor, doubting saints will wake up in glory, surprised to be there. I said some poor, doubting saints. But many proud, self-righteous, cold-hearted Christians wake up in hell, surprised to be there. Their filthy rags won't avail at all. Christ is the only Savior. If salvation is based on being found in Christ, then there's hope for the filthiest sinner. If salvation is based on being found in Christ, then there's hope for fallen saints. You believed, but then you stumbled. You walked with Christ, but then you fell. You slid into a dark pit of sin and guilt. The dark waters of condemnation seem about to swallow you up. But my friend, the command comes to you too. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But maybe I've sinned too much as a professing believer. Maybe I'm apostate. I don't know that. And you don't too. Obey the command. Come, believe, trust Christ. Repent of your foul sin that has dishonored this glorious Christ we've heard about. And if you believe on his work, you'll be forgiven and cleansed and delivered. And Christians, your day-to-day walk of life should be a life 
of being found in Christ. Notice that that is Paul's present tense life. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things for Christ, and count them back dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This is Paul's day-to-day life. I'm in Christ. I gave up everything else. I'm looking to him. He's justified me. I'm in him. God sees me through him. And now I'm walking in obedience to him. This is part of what rejoice in the Lord, the first verse talks about. The doctrine of justification, being right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, is the legal side of our union with Christ. It lays the groundwork and serves as the foundation for the experiential side of our union with Christ. And that will come in the next few verses, which we won't look at tonight. Knowing that you're in Christ and that you have his righteousness on your account is the best foundation for a sincere, holy, earnest, zealous, self-denying, flesh-crucifying walk with God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse away all the words that were not edifying and that you would light on fire all the words that were. Lord, those that arose from your word and that have the power of truth behind them, Lord, that they would burn in our hearts, my heart. Oh, Lord, that we would constantly seek to be found in him and to rejoice in the righteousness which is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, that we would not sin. Oh, that we would not fall into any foul and evil sins that would dishonor and disgrace the great work of redemption that you have done, O Christ. And yet we will fall. We know in some ways, hopefully not many, O Lord, cleanse us, wash us, and raise us up again to rejoice in the righteousness that you have written to our account by Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.